Welcome to the Six Hats podcast, where I, Dr. Shani, a lifestyle and nutritional medicine family doctor, will talk about how women strive to find balance each day by juggling their six roles, being a woman, mother, daughter, partner, business owner, and professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Six Hats podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have this conversation with Ruhi Magani. And she is the founder of Allied Collective. This is Australia's first inclusive facilitation agency specializing in inclusive training, facilitation, design, and well-being. Now, Ruhi's renowned for her straightforward communication style, which complements a strong drive and persistence in achieving equity goals. Now, with a strong academic background in business management and marketing and psychology, she's excelled in diverse sectors such as advertising, sports management, technology, hospitality, retail, and the wellness industry. And that, it doesn't stop there. So Ruhi's experience of being a yoga teacher for over 11 years and passion for human-centered design helps her to bring a deep understanding of wellness philosophy within her facilitation skills. Welcome, Ruhi. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here, Shami. So Ruhi, as always, and my listeners are very familiar with this, I always want to know, get to know you. Like, how did you go on to this journey? Do you have a personal story to share? Absolutely do. But before I get into my story, I'd firstly like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Bunurong Bunwurong and the Wurundjeri Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, also known as Melbourne or Nam, where I live and work. As for me, I identify as a proud Indian-born Australian Muslim South Asian woman. I was born and raised in the land of Bollywood, Mumbai, and I migrated to Australia about 10 years ago. In terms of my story career-wise, I identify as a generalist, so I have an academic background, like you mentioned, in psychology, business management, and marketing, but I've also been a yoga student since I was nine. So my mom, who's also a yoga teacher, inspired me to follow in her footsteps. I really saw what yoga did to her in terms of changing herself mentally, physically, emotionally, and that really set me up for to strive towards becoming better in every way. And that's why I followed her footsteps and became a yoga teacher. And I've been teaching for about 11 years. In my journey of assimilating and migrating to Australia, and like many migrants and refugees might be able to relate, it's an extraordinary and unique story and a very special journey. And we as human beings are wired for connection and belonging. So the first instinct I had was to fit in. I tried to be like everyone else around me. I just wanted to feel like I belonged. And throughout my career as a yoga teacher in Australia and in the corporate world within retail, wellness, marketing, all these industries, I noticed that I had to work twice as hard to get half as far as my peers who did not look like me. And when you search yoga on Instagram, for example, or if any, anyone who's listening to this would want to close their eyes and think about yoga, you don't see often a representation of people of color or traditional roots of yoga that honored concepts and not just contorting our bodies into pretzels. And in my corporate career, I started facilitating leadership training modules, which led me 
to the path of inclusion and diversity. And I started to mull about the concepts of those things, inclusion, facilitation, and well-being. And thus was born Allied Collective about three years ago. And a huge element and evolution has been one of trauma-informed facilitation with a well-being lens. And a lot of events, meetings, and educational spaces we know around us are not very inclusive. So my goal is to shift the needle when it comes to systems, policies, and processes through the power of inclusive facilitation. So that's kind of a little bit of a snapshot of my journey and what led me to the path of founding Allied Collective. Beautiful. That's so inspiring, Ruhi. And I feel like a lot, many listeners can relate. And especially me, again, just moved several, so many countries in my life. And yet I migrated to Australia 12 years ago. And it's really interesting. I was obviously in my past, I was born in Malaysia, but I'm Indian, then grew up in England from a very young age, from the age of four, and then actually spent a couple of teenage years in Brunei, then went back to England. So I totally get that of our natural instinct is to belong, whatever that may look like from similar accent to dressing, to eating, to the lingo. Often it's like finding the right lingo. We are driven to fit in, like we want to belong and it can be a challenge. And I totally see you from so many different elements of like in the UK where you do see people get the jobs easier or, you know, in in my time, like 20, 30 years ago when I was growing up, it was my dad's time where it was just commonplace. Jobs were difficult. You had to work twice as hard. It is so interesting you mentioned that, like even 10 years ago, that's what you were experiencing as well. And it's really important to just acknowledge that of how much courage, effort it takes when you do move countries. Absolutely. And yeah, like with you having lived in so many different countries, I guess it's trying to belong all over again and starting that journey all over again. So that must have been a fascinating journey for yourself. And I even reflect on that till today about communities, how, you know, we're always trying to build communities, how they're always changing and how I often actually feel a bit jealous of someone who's been in a country for 30, 40 years and have got the stronghold of a community because we're always creating one. We're always trying to create one when we're moving. So it's such an interesting take. It's, yeah, got me back to thinking about my past. But I'd love to start with, can we actually go up, cover the basics of what DEI and D and I mean? Yeah, so very briefly overview. Diversity is a fact. It's all around us. But inclusion, so D and I stands for diversity and inclusion. Diversity is a fact, but inclusion is a choice. So they're two sides of the same coin and one can't exist without the other. So any two people in a room, even if they're twins, can be diverse in terms of many different facets. But inclusion is the level of belonging and the psychological safety and the extent to which people can thrive regardless of their ethnicity, background, ability, citizenship status, the languages they speak, their formal education levels, or their gender, their size, or sexual orientation. And in our world, our systems continue to operate within very 
rigid, structural, systemic, and institutional barriers that continue to harm community members. And the role of DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, or in some cases it's referred to DEIJ, which includes justice as an element. So the role of diversity and inclusion is to educate and inform, advocate and challenge, and to ultimately change these systems to include communities that have been historically misrepresented and that have had doors of various kinds shut in their faces due to various structural systemic issues. Actually makes sense. And it's actually given me a really good understanding of it because in my mind, I had a slightly different interpretation, but it's looking at, at there's always diversity, but how do we get people to be included in meetings, in decision-making, in just being noticed as well? Yeah, we just want to be seen. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting take. Let's go on to inclusive well-being. What does that mean and how does it affect us as a society? Yeah. So firstly, I want to say, Shami, I love your approach of the six hats, even within the name. And because it acknowledges that we as humans exist in multiple dimensions and in different capacities, and it also looks different to everyone. And that same role, those same six roles can mean so many different things to different people. And in the same way, so my approach to inclusive well-being is multidimensional. So in the last few years, I've spent time developing the Allied Collective's 10 dimensions of well-being. So it encompasses different aspects to our well-being as humans. So we often think of well-being as, you know, mainly being physical, doing yoga, exercise, mental or emotional, going to therapy and such. But there's often missed elements in there. For example, there's social well-being, the kind of relationships we have and how they affect us on many levels. Environmental well-being, how does our physical space and surroundings have an impact on us? And in the same way, how are we impacting the environment around us? So when coaching leaders to make their workplaces more inclusive, an element, for example, we consider is environmental well-being, where if your lights are too bright for neurodiverse folks, if there's prayer rooms to cater to religious inclusion in workplaces. And another dimension is, for example, intersectional well-being, which the DEI industry talks a lot about intersectionality, which means, and you, for example, would know in your line of work with, you know, medical racism, gender-based gaslighting within the medical industry, and intersectional well-being acknowledges the various factors that can come into play that puts you either at an advantage or a disadvantage, depending on your background. So an example of a statistic I found was that in 2018-2019, an estimated of 24% of Indigenous Australians reported having a mental health or behavioural condition. And adults reported having high or very high levels of psychological distress. And we know that through data and research that a person's well-being is influenced by social factors around us, social factors of health. And this includes factors like institutional racism and the effects of colonization and other past events. And in terms of the wider lens of well-being, 
the well-being industry is believed estimated at about $4.3 trillion. Wow. And it's estimated to almost double in the next four years, which is incredible when you think how can we overlook such a big element of how we as humans operate within society, how we exist. And better well-being means social cohesion. It means economic growth, equity, improved mental health and social justice and also sustainability. So it's kind of like a very urgent issue I'm trying to advocate for and I feel very passionate about it. That's incredible. You mentioned about the 10 areas. Could we dive deep slightly into that? Yeah, so there's mental, physical, emotional, there's social well-being, there's environmental well-being, and there's financial well-being, which another one that gets really missed up on the radar. We know that women get the shorter end of the stick in many ways when it comes to financial well-being. Single moms are worse off financially. Older women have less in their super compared to their male counterparts. You know, I've personally left a financially abusive marriage. So it's kind of, I've experienced that element of financial well-being and that's why I'm so passionate about it. Another element, for example, is digital well-being. We're looking at an increasingly fast-paced digital world. AI is coming in. And how do we operate from safeguarding our own well-being? So, you know, it could mean being less switched on or online all the time, not being addicted to social media apps, for example, and another element or social justice element of digital well-being is we're looking at increasing cases of technology-facilitated gender-based violence. We see domestic violence as a huge problem in our community, but now we have an added layer of complication which incorporates that digital element. So how are we protecting vulnerable people in the community by safeguarding their digital well-being? So in those 10 elements, I think we could do a podcast each exactly. of them. But yeah, this is an example of what that looks like. Amazing, amazing. So what are the unspoken benefits of DNI in the workplace? Yeah, so personally, I think we're past the business case for diversity and inclusion. And we know that there's so much data around innovative and successful businesses just being more like, I think, revolutionary in their approach. More diverse companies have 19% higher revenue. They make better decisions about 87% of the time. And if we look at the why behind these numbers or these statistics is that if you look at diversity in thought, the wider your range or your perspectives are at the table, the more creative, the more innovative, the more out of the box your ideas are going to be. And it's just good for business. And yeah, we take that for granted very often. There's some other stats around being more diverse companies are 21% more likely to outperform in terms of profitability. And now in the, in the increasingly aware stage of society that we're going towards, more than two thirds of job seekers actively consider the DNI section of a website before applying for that company. They want to make sure that their companies are aligned with their values and values over sometimes trumps the paycheck as well. So it's no longer like a nice to have. You can't just slap it on your website being like, we stand for diversity and inclusion. But then you look at your board 
or your executive suite and it's literally all white old males so that can no longer pass because that's considered tokenism so you need to walk the talk and it's a need for every business that leaders just can't ignore anymore and when it comes to diversity and inclusion you can't expect to have or attract a diverse stakeholder if your current systems don't facilitate inclusive practices and what i mean by that is if you own a retail store and if you say oh we want we're a very accessible and inclusive brand but your stores don't have ramps for wheelchair users or your clothing racks don't have space for them to pass through that's considered tokenism because you're not following through with your commitment. Wow. So much to think about, Ruby. Isn't there? It's just a great to spark of a conversation, to even spark of conversations in the workplace. Are we actually thinking about it? Because I often say we can live a very sort of robotic life, just automated, because we're so used to familiarity. So we just keep going. This is the job. This is my workplace. This is how it is. And not actually challenging or suggesting change because we love we love familiarity. Change can be quite confronting or, you know, against our norm. So interesting, challenging conversations to have. And like what you said, it's actually beneficial on so many levels. So how do you start having those conversations? Because it kind of goes on to our next question, like what can we do to contribute towards more more inclusive world? How do we start that conversation? Yeah, so I like to look at it. There's an element of change management that comes with the work that I do. And if we don't change or challenge our thinking, nothing's going to change. So we live in a world where change is the only constant, and we know that. And we, as humans, are wired for familiarity. And, you know, change does scare us. So I think it's First, acknowledging that change is necessary for a better future. And with that comes so many different things. So one of them is recognizing our privilege. And in order to recognize that, we need to learn what it means for us personally and how it affects the way we live. So there's lots of myths around privilege. And the way I like to explain it is that privilege is not the presence of perks and benefits all around you. It's the absence of barriers and obstacles that other people have. And it's a lot harder to notice because you don't have to go through that. So for example, I, as an able-bodied person, I don't have to think about whether a venue I'm speaking at has wheelchair access or has a sign language translator. When I know I have this privilege, It helps me use that privilege to advocate for those that don't. And it helps me shift my thinking from being one of a victim to one of action and change. So that mindset reframe is so important. And with that includes spotlighting and elevating communities that have been ignored to use our privilege, our voice and visibility to uplift others. And the biggest I guess coaching that I do give my leaders is to learn and that it's okay to get it wrong sometimes, but we're here to get it right and not be right all the time. So it's okay to be wrong, acknowledge that, and then move on and do better. Another way we can start to shift and change our thinking is to look at the movies we watch, the books we read, the podcasts we listen to. Are we inviting perspectives that challenge us? 
or are we looking and surrounding ourselves around the same kind of ideologies that don't really push our boundaries and our biases as much? What do the speakers and authors you listen to look like? What are their lived experiences, you know? Language is a big one, especially in a multicultural country like Australia. So according to the ABS, more than 21% of Australians speak a language other than English. So as a leader, can you collaborate or work with practitioners who offer services in different language? And it makes business sense, right? You're just expanding your offerings to a more diverse audience. And it's just a win-win situation. When I touched on tokenism earlier, an example is if a business is putting up rainbow stickers everywhere for Pride Month, but they don't have gender-neutral toilets or address the whole team as, hey, guys, which is a very, you know, very blanket term, or they assume someone's pronouns, that immediately excludes the LGBTQIA plus community. Another element is, like I mentioned before, trauma-informed language and training. So a lot of inappropriate language, however well-meaning, can make its way. I often see that in a lot of yoga classes around uh, that we can improve on. And I think from a broader understanding of businesses, there's a need and a growth of training and education for employees and topics such as cultural humility, inclusive communication. So this helps us and our teams focus and better understand diverse perspectives of their colleagues, their customers, different stakeholders. And this ultimately helps us to create a more welcoming environment and just makes it psychologically safe, more inclusive for everyone. So personally, I do think inclusive leadership is the way forward. It's a non-negotiable and cultural humility and awareness is a big part of it. And I think if we start to acknowledge and operate from that, we're just headed towards such a bright future. And I'm seeing so many leaders who are passionate about it and who really are so driven to make their workplaces and the world a better, more inclusive space. So I'm super excited. Amazing, Ruhi. I feel like you've actually answered my next couple of questions about your vision and what does that look like? But I'd love to see from your perspective, what have you seen when you've educated the leaders through your workshops? Have you seen the change in the workplace? What's the positive change that you've seen? I have. And I think, you know, there's some really tough stories, for example, the murder of George Floyd, that it's taken that much for us as a society and as a collective world to wake up to the truth that is the the barriers that exist for so many communities in our society. But I think that has really accelerated the need and the growth for inclusion as a movement. You know, it's revolutionizing the way we look at justice, for example. And for us closer to home, you know, listening to First Nations communities and Indigenous communities and becoming active allies. So in that, we're looking at a shift of allyship being more of like, oh, it's just a thing to a verb, people wanting to do more in terms of actions. What can I do? You know, so I'm seeing a lot of that, the need for education in this space. You know, we were talking about the need for education. And I think there's a lot of appetite to learn which is the best way to go about it. Learn from diverse perspectives, from diverse communities. And I think 
there might be a little bit of hesitation when it comes to systems change, but I think that's the most impactful way we can go about it. So for example, when we're talking about visible representation, for example, in senior leadership positions, we would love to have that, but are we looking at, you know, hiring and recruitment policies, for example? Are we looking at inclusive promotion practices or mentoring and sponsorship practices? You know, we're looking at the very uh, pyramid style kind of a leadership hierarchy that we see and we see the visible diversity get less and less the mm. higher on top we go. But I think when we change systems of does our hiring, recruitment and promotion practices recognize the bias that can prevent certain people from progressing to the next level? I think it was Deacon that did a study recently that your X percent less likely to get called back for an interview if you have an ethnic name that is harder to pronounce. And this is such kind of an obvious data point that goes by, yes, we're structurally inept to have, you know, more representation and inclusion in our workplaces. It's really funny you say that because the stories I've heard from friends and family, they actually give themselves a different name for the preferred name as something really short, easy, and then of course they've got their full name. And for me, when I first heard that, I've just heard it in the last couple of years in Australia, like that's how people get their first jobs. It really kind of shocked me. I go, wow, the hurdles that they have to jump through to even just get an interview. So, wow. So it is, it is a lot to do education, information, absolutely. And you know, a personal story to share is just my full name. Not many can pronounce it. Hence why I've shortened it to Shami, which I love. Absifi, parents call me that. But Shamistra is my full name. And throughout school, I think I remember in primary school in the UK, there was only one teacher that could pronounce my name. Wow. And as a result, I was always asked, how do you say that? How do you say that? And so it was natural for me to go, just call me Shami. And then natural for me to go even at uni. And it's simple things like that where we have to adapt in order to belong. But a long way to go, right? A long way to go, Ruby, but it's so hopeful. It's so hopeful for what you're doing as well. Thank you. And yeah, that example that you gave is an experience that so many people have to go through. And, you know, we see, we are seeing change where you will see people of like, no, tell me how to pronounce your name. And even I'm in that space of, oh, just call me Ruby or Ruth for my coffee. And I'm like, no, I I will teach you how to pronounce my name and spell my name. (laughs) Oh my God, Ruby, it's so funny you mentioned we do have coffee names as well. (laughs) Because I know my husband's got his coffee name and I've got my coffee name because it's always- What's your coffee name? They always pronounce it as Shani. So the my coffee name is Shani and I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's Shani <laughs> for the coffee. And so it is hilarious. There's a couple of, you know, there's humor around it as well. What's your and your coffee name is it Ruth? Rue, kind of like just R-U-E. But yeah, now it's kind of when I meet someone in a formal setting, I will take the time of like it's Ruhi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. What an awesome conversation, Ruhi. And I'd love to know where can people find you if they're interested in learning about your workshops? Yeah, so my website is alliedcollective.com.au. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I do a lot of storytelling and education on LinkedIn. And yeah, send me an email, send me a message. More than happy to chat. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ruhi. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for having me, Shami. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. I think it's really revolutionizing the way we look at holistic well-being and we need more of that in this world. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Remember that this is general advice only. Please see your healthcare professional for more information. So what's your take-home message today? Remember, it's all about progress and not perfection. And are you suffering from stress? Visit the Usawa Learning Hub on usawa.com.au for more resources on how to de-stress, re-energize and reclaim your health. Enjoy the journey.